So he's really speaking of the Jewish people who didn't accept him as their Christ. And he says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Um, Jesus tells this parable, and he's obviously the one of noble birth who went to the distant country and became king. And he casts himself as calling for their public execution. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, although today it's just two, Kent and Nathan, seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover what's good and wonderful about the gospel. And today's episode is called, Why the Hell? What the Hell? (laughs) And it may seem strange for us to be talking about hell because our previous podcast series, Recovering Faith, we went to great lengths to argue that the emphasis in the gospel is salvation from the corrupt the corruption of society and salvation from the corruption within ourselves, not salvation from the threat of hell. That was an emphasis in our last series. However, we never denied the reality of hell. So today we're going to take up the issue. We're aware that many people nowadays don't want to be Christians on account of their revulsion to the doctrine of hell, especially their revulsion to the description of hell as eternal conscious torment. And I think that's the standard Christian view, eternal conscious torment. Uh, But it's not the only Christian view of hell. It seems that uh, many people think there is no viable alternative to eternal conscious torment if they're going to be faithful, believing Christians. I know that's generally how I have felt about the issue. So I have questions about this myself for Nathan today. Today we're going to focus on uh, annihilationism, also known as conditional immortality. Some big words for us there. Annihilationism or conditional immortality. And we're going to explore whether that might be a viable alternative to eternal conscious torment. Is annihilation a view that uh, both accounts for the Bible's language and also offers people a hell that they can believe in? And I'd like to explore that for myself and see whether that can be so. Uh, But before we get into annihilation, let's ask first, why the hell? Right. (laughs) Why do we need to believe in any version of hell? Why not believe that God's love does away with hell altogether? Why not believe that everyone is reconciled to God already? Isn't there a more positive version of Christianity in which God's love in Christ absorbs all the sin and evil of the world and all God's judgment against sin and evil so that there is no more judgment left to administer? No more need for hell. Why the hell? Why? Yeah. Nathan? I want to return to that, uh, the hell you can believe in. Yeah. That sounds like a good slogan. Yeah. yeah. A hell yeah. you can't believe in. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's just rebranding. Uh-huh. Yeah. Somewhere in the infernal realms. They're like, you know, we're really getting some bad press here. <laughs> let's, tr- let's try to go with something, something a little different. Yeah. Uh, whereas the previous slogan was, ah, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Why? Why did we have this? Well, I, and um, I, I, I guess I have this kind of cautionary tale at the beginning as, as we're talking about this, uh, and that is that whatever position we take has to be consistent with revelation, with the ancient revelation of the gospel. The reason I say that is because um, I, we've got to be intellectually honest, semantically honest with the things that that we say. We uh, when I say we, I, I guess I mean the Christian movement, professing Christians, um, that we are responsible for how the watching world sees us. Um, and I think Francis Schaeffer did a lot of, to talk about that. Uh, 
And when when we begin to move the goalpost, when we say, "Oh no, no, no," it's it's you know th- those parts of the Bible um, we don't we don't accept, but we accept just these parts. Um, it really comes off as dishonest, um, it, and there's very much kind of a um, have your cake and eat it too, uh, or eat your cake and have it too if you're um, certain people. But anyway, there's this. It, it doesn't really speak of a lot of intellectual uh, integrity. And so it doesn't, in, in my view at least, it doesn't really present God well. It, it's like there's this, this PR campaign to distance ourselves from unpleasant, you know, culturally dissonant um, ideas about God. And, and maybe that is in order to to present him in a positive light to our culture, but I can't help but wonder that um, if we aren't just short-selling the people in our culture and, and maybe presuming they aren't smart enough to recognize that we, you know, we've, we've taught and believed this for centuries and now suddenly it's out of vogue. Um, and, and I think that that is a legitimate critique of the Christian movement that it just so happens that our morality tends to conform to that of the culture around. And as people begin to critique us for that, they say, well, we don't really need Christianity if you're just going to parrot the moral sensibilities of the culture. Mm-hmm. So, and, so, so the question, why the hell? Why yeah. hell? You're saying because it's part of the ancient tradition of the gospel and that's why, regardless of the fact that it's out of vogue today. Right. Or I, I guess I would say if we're going to shed that idea, we better find reasons in Scripture that that was what was taught all along. So right. I'm, I'm not against, and, and I think if you've listened to this podcast, I'm not against uh, radical reconsideration of what uh, the church has taught. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Uh, I, I just, I'm against conveniently concocting mm-hmm. a version of Christianity that fits with modern cultural sensibilities without any sort of biblical support or with a very, very thin biblical support, uh, proof texting kind of biblical support. So that's that's what I would and urge I think us you just, to do. I think you just alluded to, you, you, you would think, you would you would argue that it's thin to say something like Jesus overcame overcame all of God's judgment and wrath, all sin and death, and the cross, and therefore there's no more room left for any of that. Right. Yeah. It's a nice idea, maybe. Right. But your point is that it doesn't stand up against uh, the biblical evidence. Right. Yeah. Um, and. As we've been saying, uh, the gospel has set us free from cultural conformity, and uh, it's maybe it's more obvious when we think about uh, the pressure of authority on us, that somebody above us is somehow threatening us or coercing us to do a thing, and we need to, in faith, assert our freedom, not through rebelliousness. Sometimes that freedom is through going the second mile, through actually radical submission because we say, hey, no, it was, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for my Lord. And now we're free even as we are um, complying maybe with what somebody wants. But but we recognize, as, and we've mentioned Milgram 
Milgram made the observation that um, people tend to deny conformity as a basis of their behavior while they embrace obedience as an, as an explanation of their behavior. Someone can say, well, I just did it because he made me. Mm -hmm. That's easy to do. But very few people stand up and say, man, I'm just a conformist. I probably don't even have a personality. You know, very few people would say that, and yet it's probably true of the majority. And, and what's alarming, I think, for me is when Christians begin to be conformed to the pattern of this world, as Paul urges us not to, um, in that they embrace this uh, cultural morality um, uncritically, and then they begin to go back and, and revise their their view of the gospel based on that, that, that ironically, in, in asserting some sort of a, what they believe is a radical or a liberating version of the gospel, they are actually you know, rattling these chains of, of cultural conformity that, that if the gospel doesn't cut across our cultural sensibilities in, in certain places, we've probably already relinquished it, that it, it is going to critique everyone's culture in, mm -hmm. in several places. Mm -hmm. And um, if we just somehow conveniently as, as kind of the, the moral narrative in our society is very much about tolerance, acceptance, you know, these kinds of ideas, if suddenly our version of God begins to just align with the majority view on virtue and, and morality, then we, then we probably should be concerned. Uh, all that to say is, is that whatever position we take on hell, it, it needs to be somehow, it needs to come from, as you were saying, it needs to come from the ancient uh, scriptures and it needs to be consonant with the gospel so that's that's where we hope to head um and i've got this whole thing about conceding the argument um to um skeptics you know uh, people see when we are conceding it but uh the the fact of the matter is that scripture so let, let me let me give an example uh, in the past i've said paul was just wrong on his teaching on women Okay, yeah. so that's that's an example of me redacting the Bible um, in line with cultural sensibilities right mm -hmm. now. So I'm I'm doing the thing I, I do the thing I'm counseling other people not to do. The reason I I do that is because I and I've done taken pains to demonstrate that the gospel itself teaches that there is this radical equality, and that even in the New Testament among the New Testament authors. And even in the Old Testament, that there is this progression toward equality between all people. Mm -hmm. That the very notion of one flesh is this coming together on an equal basis. Um, and so I can critique elements in Scripture based on um, the larger portion of Scripture, I think, or at least a trend in Scripture that I see, and based on the gospel. That the gospel inherently affirms this and that there's nothing in the gospel that would suggest that one gender has a particular role where another one doesn't. And, and we can work all that out practically. I'm just saying that there has to be a basis. Now, if we say, well, God is, is always loving. He's not going to judge anybody. Um, you can say that, but you better come up with some basis. You know, just give me something. Don't just say, well, it's because Jesus seems very nice in the Gospels, and, and he's not. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's really not even based on the Gospels. When people see 
they they say, well, we need to see God through the lens of Jesus, and so all that is that is wrathful and judgmental has done away in Jesus as he's sitting with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And, uh, you know, at the same time, Jesus is, he is calling down wrath and hellfire. He's telling people to repent that it's only one, ver- it's not even just the gospels. It's a version of Jesus in the gospels, a very selective version of Jesus in the gospels. Um, and unless we can find a, a real basis, a substantive basis to say, hey, God isn't wrathful anymore. We're really cutting off a limb. We're standing on. We just miss it all together, you know. And so I've heard, read, uh, some would say, "Well, those are incidental mentions of God's wrath in the Old Testament." And I was like, "No, if if by every other chapter, then you mean incidental, then then yeah, uh, you know, two hundred and six uh, mentions of the word wrath in the ESV. That I, I, that's not an incidental concept. That's um, that's a critical and core idea." And so God, from the that very God beginning, God is the judge. That that there's a judgment coming. Mm-hmm. That uh, that there's a that God God breaks out in wrath. And yeah. these are this is these are these are major biblical themes. Right. Is what you're saying? Yeah. And and I think that we lose something if we see God as non-wrathful uh, because it makes Him dispassionate, and His love is much more charity uh, than this. What um, Rich Mullins, I guess, maybe he got it from uh, Brennan Manning, this reckless, raging fury. Um, and so God in, in Scripture, he is jealous. Uh, he's not, he, he didn't open a soup kitchen uh, or a rehab center. This, he doesn't, he's not keeping it professional. For him, it's, it's personal. And, and there, is, there is a very deep relationship. And so, the, the, you know, the, the basis behind all of this if we see God as the great rehabilitator or educator and we, we need him to be um, somehow separate and always pursuing um, redemption and rehabilitation, then we really do miss the relational side of the story, that, that it is all about relationship. The reason God is angry is because he is a lover spurned. Um, and so... You know, this this fire of love burns, and Song of Solomon says, you know, nothing can quench this, you know. Um, and if if this love is spurned, it, it incites. I think, I, I think you're arguing, for, I think what you're saying is something that I've heard that, uh, N.T. Wright say, that it's actually precisely God's love that drives him to judgment and wrath. It's right. because he cares about uh, the world he made and the people he made, yeah. and that's precisely why he's going to judge those who would destroy it. Mm-hmm. Well, he's defending, I think, the the innocent and the weak and, and stuff like that. But he is also standing up for himself. He ha- he himself is the is the great and maybe only legitimate plaintiff in this courtroom. Mm-hmm. That he's the innocent party. He is the source of all things. Therefore, all things are owed to him. He is supreme in glory, and so you know the. The way we represent him means, you know, it is kind of the basis of existence. So when people despise him, um, when they disregard him, when they mischaracterize him, Scripture presents him as getting angry about that, um, that he is personally affronted. And it's not because 
we are so significant, but because he has invested in us that significance, that he has made himself vulnerable to us by inviting us into this relationship. And um, certainly God isn't getting so, it. So what's, how would you respond to someone who would say, are you describing a God who's petty, a God who's like um, small, who's insecure? Um, are you describing a God who is um, impetulant, you know, in some way? Right. Um, no, I, I'm describing a God who is worthy. And so if, if he is worthy, there's something due him. And if he's not worthy, then, he, then we mustn't worship him, that those are wound together. So if we, if we claim that there is a being that ought to be worshipped, then that presumes he is worthy. And yet if he's, if he's worthy, the backside of that is that the refusal to give him his due is, is, a, is, a cosmic, is cosmic fraud. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that there, and so Paul speaks in Romans 1, 18, and he, and he says that the wrath of God um, is made manifest against all ungodliness or impiety and the unrighteousness of people who hide the truth in their wickedness. And then he goes on to talk about how people have refused to thank him, refused to glorify him, and in having done so, opened this Pandora's box to all of the other ills and, and pain and um, poison of human society because of this of this great fraud that has been perpetrated. And, and yet this this fraud, it's it's progressive, it's contagious, it um, it tends to infect everything around and it pollutes everything. And so if you go back to the account of the Noahic flood, and I don't have this in our outline, but um, that 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 flood isn't just a, a judgment; it's a cleansing. That that judgment um, presumes that this final judgment, that or that this kind of societal judgment, that God tends to judge societies. You know, we've been saying that 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 we have been set free from this present evil age. But part of the reason we need to be set free from this present evil age is because God's wrath is coming on this present evil age. He's Mm -hmm. going to judge it and that there is this cleansing that comes with it. Now, you can clean things in a couple of different ways, right? Water on one level. So let's say uh, let's say you're getting ready, and we've just had uh, the Passover season has just come and gone, right? And you're a, you're a Jewish person, and you're trying to get all of the leaven out of your house. Uh, you're koshering your house, right? Now, on one level, certain items, certain utensils, and things in your house can be cleansed with water. Smooth surface items can be cleansed with water. Other things that maybe have cracks and pores in them, things where um, yeast uh, might hide need to be cleansed with fire. So when we talk about hell, we're talking about a cleansing conflagration. <laughs> so uh, Peter had said that the, the previous world was cleansed through water, mm-hmm. but now the things that are are being reserved for fire. Mm-hmm. So he's referring to the Noah, Noah's flood, mm-hmm. previous world cleansed with water. There's coming a judgment of fire. Right, right. And, and that just seems to be the theme throughout Scripture, that there's this, 
judgment that is that is final, it's decisive, um, and it's not just about the um, anger of God, although that's real. It's not just about the satisfying of that anger, but it is about a cleansing of God's creation for the purpose of God's um, intention being restored. Mm-hmm. That 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 sin has a polluting and a progressive aspect to it that has to be dealt with, and so there's coming a judgment. Okay, so is that a is that a restorative judgment? Is what what. It seems like we're working with retributive judgment and restorative judgment, and maybe the two work closely together. Mm-hmm. Um, when God cleanses uh, the world and, let's say, the universe of all this evil, um, he's doing it, as you said, in order to um, produce a new creation that is pure and holy. Right. Um so that's restorative in that sense, right? He's seeking to restore his creation. Right. But in doing so, he must put away what is evil. Yeah. Um, and so is there an element of that that is retributive? And maybe define retributive justice. It's a word that gets thrown around. Maybe we, a good definition would help. Yeah. Um, well, Scripture talks about that, that God is going to pay back, that, there's an, uh, that there are accounts. We have this sense that, uh, for instance, when sin is described in the model prayer that Jesus gave, forgive us our debts mm-hmm. as we forgive our debtors. Mm-hmm. So that presumes a relational uh, accounting system, that there can be merits and debits in a relationship. And I, and I think that we understand that. Um, if we were going to do away with that entirely, I, I don't know what that would look like if you could imagine Let's just say you're in a, a committed romantic relationship where one partner does all the giving and the other partner does all the receiving. And, and we could say, well, if we're truly evolved and we're esoteric enough that that won't matter and that that relationship, we can call that relationship healthy because we've evolved past this need for quid pro quo. And so we have one partner who is this living saint who's an utter altruist and another who is a living leech and uh, it's fine is that fine what do you think you know that's not healthy well let's let's project that wider into society so you've got a whole civilization and certain members are they just are born and they live and they die utterly entitled and the whole society must must labor to keep their standard of living where they think it should be what do you think? Good society? Uh, doesn't seem like a, a great arrangement. Right. So there, there's, an, there's an economy and accounting to relationships. And we, we've said before that God is inviting us into his perfect relationship, that there is at the essence of the divine economy this self-forgetting love, yes, but it never becomes this codependency that would be utterly unhealthy. And so if you look, we get a glimpse into the divine economy, like in this prayer that Jesus offers in John 17. And, and people are, you know, uh, those who would critique the Trinity would say, how can God pray to God? But, but if God doesn't pray to God, then prayer is nonsensical. And we can talk more about that. But um, because God doesn't, certainly doesn't need our input if he is this solitary, all-knowing, all-powerful being, then the idea of prayer is just goes away. And by the way, that's what happens in religions like Islam. You don't actually ask for things in prayer. You don't inform God of anything. You just recite stuff to, to gain spiritual collateral. Um, 
but th- that's neither here nor there. In a relational God, right, a God who is a relationship, the idea of, of fairness is baked in. That Jesus says, I have glorified you in John 17. I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work you've given me to do. Now glorify me with your own self. So there is this implied, there is this mm. necessary give and take, a quid pro quo, but it is, it's not about obligation. It, it is about love. It's about like... Mutuality. Like, right. And, and all, all the members of the Godhead want to do is pour themselves out on each other, but, but there is this implicit uh, response that's there. And so Jesus says the one that, that loses his life does well. No, he says the one that loses his life will find it. You know, that there is this casting out of ourselves for, for uh, reciprocity. What's broken in our world is this idea that I need to win and you need to lose. That the fallen economy is based on a win-lose. Um, and so we're always keeping accounts and, and we're concerned that we're not going to lose and we're trying to take up our own side and make sure that we don't lose and you don't win. Yeah, and today the word is scarcity. Yeah. Scarcity mindset. Right, right. But in God, could there ever be such a thing? Right. And and so what, what he is doing in, in redeeming society is, is he's, cre- he's restoring it to this win-win life, right? And, and a state where everything is just is, is shalom. Everybody is flourishing together. There isn't a win-lose. I think that's that essence. Okay, so justice is important. But it seems if God is, is going to, and, and part of this is that there is a, a voluntary mandate that freedom is mandatory in this relationship, that nobody can coerce this kind of fair treatment out of anybody else, or else it's suddenly not fair. You have power dynamics and you have oppression, stuff like that. So that it has to be fair and it has to be voluntary. That Those have to go together. Now, if... God is going to, let's say he retains everybody that's ever lived. Okay, so every criminal, everybody that was that has been uh, broken by the system, career criminals, con men, politicians, you know, all those, all those people that are irredeemable people. Yeah, yeah. The deplorables. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, are there people who are irredeemable? Yes, there are. Why? Is it because God's not strong enough? No. It's because God refuses to coerce people or to... Uh, supersede or to undermine their will that's what they are at essence okay and and if you stretch that out over eternity people are not going to if if you remake the universe or remake the planet let's say with without coercion will it work like today let's just say all coercion all coercive power has now been eradicated what will happen to society? Well, to, and without having transformed people. Right. Well, they'll, uh, they'll, I think they'll just devour one another. Right. Well, right. The strong will prey on the weak right? yeah. and the, the wicked will prey on the righteous. And um, and yet we will we are our hope is to live in a renewed earth that is free of coercive power. How can that happen? Okay, so 
there there are really two things that that are that are under consideration. One is that injustice has taken place on the planet, mm-hmm. right? So people have taken advantage of others, um, as well as God, right? Um, yeah, they've defrauded God at the outset, but as as a part of that and an extension of that, now they have defrauded one another. They have preyed on one another. They have benefited at the at the cost of others. So uh, let's take something like human trafficking. Let's say somebody like a Jeffrey Epstein or whatever. Mm-hmm. Let's say he lived and um, flourished and always received good things in his life, and he made millions of dollars. Um, selling the flesh of innocent people. And when it comes time for him to stand before God, God says, hey, man, it's cool. I get it. What if God says, hey, it's not cool. You're going to need to go through uh, a few hundred million years of purgative experience to rid this evil of mm-hmm. your uh, of your soul. I'm going to get it out of you. Sure. Uh, and, and in the end, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll be reconciled. Right. Uh, is there is there purgative value in non in involuntary suffering? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's yeah. In, on this scenario, it, it, it implied in what I said, someone would have to argue that somehow or another, Jeffrey Epstein will see the error of his ways at this point and will voluntarily enter into this process. Right. And if we believe that that there is purgative value in involuntary suffering, then hey, the Inquisition had it right. All you need is a hot poker up the butt, and you'll be you'll be right as rain. Right, but we don't ever say that. Has it ever fixed anybody? Nobody believes that. Right, it makes them that much more resentful. Mm-hmm. Right, it hardens them and their hostility and their rebellion, and at best, it will produce external conformity with with deep bitterness. Right, and so so if uh, it, if it if it if it doesn't work here, why would it work in the afterlife? Right, is your argument right? Yeah, there there may be a, an external kind of a, hey, uh, yeah, everything's cool, but but a secret, you know, uh, hostility and mm-hmm. stuff under underlying, and that will always be the case, which is why the cross is so critical. Because yes, I I think that there there is purgative value to suffering, but it must be will uh, you know willful, not willful, but you know willing. Like God, we have to join Jesus in saying, "Not your will, but mine be done." We have to um, take up our cross. The cross cannot just be imposed upon us. That doesn't have any power or value. It's only when we when we joyfully and willingly take it up, and we only joyfully and willingly take it up when there's this promise that there's going to be some sort of compensation. <laughs> you know that what we receive in return is better than what we give up by by accepting this. Mm-hmm. And and so God is, even God is, is he's inviting us into this relationship that is compensatory, you know, that, that is healthy and mutual um, because that's that essence of who he is. And if this healthy mutuality can't be had and people can't participate in it, they don't have a place in his redeemed creation. Okay, now they don't have a place. Now, have you explained, have you answered my question about how uh, God's judgment is retributive? Yeah. Uh, well, let, let me just be really explicit. I, so people, some people will go through life doing evil and receiving good. 
and some will go through life doing good and receiving evil. Um, and if we have a sense that, that things ought to be fair, mm-hmm. and I think we have that sense because at our essence is the divine image, mm-hmm. then um, there is something left. There are accounts that are left unsettled at the end of history. Uh-huh. At the end of a person's individual life and at the end of history. Right. So either those accounts are left unsettled and we all just have to get over it, or those accounts are settled by a third party. And, and that's really the only way for inequity to be settled, which is why I, uh, I say if you are, are African-American and you, and you say no justice, no peace, um, you you have a point, you know, and and I would I would agree that there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of racial inequity in America. Um, at the same time, I would say that you're participating in something Luciferian because you are insisting that that other people that you are trying to adjudicate fairness and you are going to penalize people until they provide it for you, and that is always going to lead to terrible injustice Resentment, on the other side hostility not peace right right and and so uh, james says that the peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of justice but we have to we have to believe that there is a god who will take up our side and will bring forth that just harvest if we will participate in peace right now vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord right and there isn't a vengeance is not is immaterial don't worry about it, says the Lord. That there, that there, that there must be repayment, or, or we're going to be left with kind of a, a vigilantism, with uh, kind of a, a perpetual feud among ourselves. That there has to be an uninvolved third party who is settling disputes between others, or at least someone who is inherently just, and there's only one, um, who can adjudicate. Otherwise this attempt to settle accounts becomes unfair on the other side. So you're saying that because we're in a relational universe, justice is retributive. Right. Yeah. That there has to be mutuality. The ideal of a relationship and the divine relationship and all others uh, as a consequence is mutuality. Without mutuality, something is fundamentally broken and that broken thing needs to be settled. And so... Injustice must be meted, or justice must be meted out at some point. And the only way that we can truly, I think, live out the gospel and follow Jesus is if we understand that God is going to vindicate us. Jesus comes to absorb injustice, to experience it, to take it on. But then he is, he is vindicated and he will be vindicated. You know, um, the idea that God, the God of the Old Testament has been superseded by this loving, accepting Jesus doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we get to passages like Luke uh, 1927, where Jesus says, um, you know, those people who didn't want me to rule over them, bring them here and kill them before me. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not as sweet as we want Jesus to be. And yet, if we're getting our Jesus from the Gospels, we need to be consistent. So Luke 19, 12 through 14, uh, Jesus or Luke 
Recounting Jesus, telling a parable, he says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. So um, this is a parable of the, you might think of the talents, if you're, if you're biblically familiar, I guess. But um, here it's the minas. Um, and we skip down to verse 27. He says, uh, you know, then he sent for his servants, he'd given them the money in order to find out what they gained with it. But then he says in verse 27, but those enemies of mine. So he's really speaking of the Jewish people who didn't accept him as their Christ. And he says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Um, Jesus tells this parable, and he's obviously the one of noble birth who went to the distant country and became king. And he casts himself as calling for their public execution. Now, either you accept Jesus as he presents himself, or you don't. <laughs> but I, I don't think it, it should be up to anybody to create their own Jesus who doesn't say that. Um, because it's just not, it's not fair uh, for us to just project what we think Jesus ought to be um, and instead of holding intention a Jesus who can, yes, accept and love those who are marginalized in society um, and call for the public execution of those who had rebelled against him. Uh, if we can't hold those intention, well, doesn't that suggest that maybe our paradigm is too narrow? And, and not that one must be false because the other is true. Mm -hmm. So there, there will be a judgment. It will be retributive um, in the sense that it's going to settle these relational accounts. And God is a part of that relationship. He is going to vindicate himself. But it will also be purgative in the sense that it's not going to cleanse the individual personality of people man that's here that's now today you know um, this is the day of of salvation are, are we going to repent today it, there's not some sort of later thing and, wh and why is that because i know a lot of people are, are thinking well maybe there is an opportunity after death and and what is your response to that well i i guess I'd, i'm not going to say what god can or can't do and maybe he does and certainly we we see that uh, jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison uh, peter seems to think in first peter three uh, but i think that might have been a limited time offer based on some stuff in enoch which is a conversation for a whole other day um, but it, it seems that because there is this divine honoring of our will that god is has engineered things to give us uh, the opportunity to make a free choice and once he's come face to face and and now it's all on the table. There's really not that opportunity to a free choice. Baked into God's immediate presence is is a coercive threat. <laughs> you know, if if we it just his just his very presence is is uh, could wipe us out, mm -hmm. right? And and so coming face to face there now you're you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and you're saying you know I got a cookie for you, right? So we, who so who wouldn't? "Quote unquote," repent and right. believe if they're standing before God, right? Uh, and that wouldn't be authentic, right? Uh, whereas in this life, when we don't uh, see God, 
we have the opportunity to authentically repent and believe. Right. And this is something that we're going to actually talk about uh, if anybody's interested in coming to a, a Bible study on Sunday nights. Uh, but we're going to talk about the story of Joseph and his brothers in the next couple of weeks. And in that story, um, Joseph has uh, has been wronged by his brothers, right? There's an injustice that's been done. Joseph is is relatively an innocent. I mean, he's annoying, but he didn't doesn't deserve to be betrayed by his older brothers and sold into slavery, right? And and then being falsely accused and being in prison and being forgotten in prison and all of the injustice that Joseph suffered. Um, and yet Joseph is is vindicated. He's you know God has has orchestrated events so that he is not only vindicated, but he's he's given this position of, of great power. Okay, and his brothers come because now there's this famine, and Jacob has sent them to uh, to go and buy grain in Egypt. And you know you may know the story. Now when they come, it's been 22 years, right? He was 17. He looks pretty different. Right? They, they probably looked very similar. Um, and so they don't recognize him. Now, you would think there'd be one of two things because he recognizes them, mm-hmm. right? So really, I, I think most of us would do one of two things. We would either forget the past and just accept them and rejoice to see them and reveal ourselves and, you know, hug their neck and bring them in because we just valued that relationship and what was lost more than the harm that was done to us. Um, and more than that, the harm that was done to Jacob through this, this lie that they let him believe his son was dead for 22 years. I mean, it's insane. Um, or we would retain uh, the hurt. We would take our shot. We would say, wow, it's not so funny anymore, is it? You know, shoes on the other foot. Mm-hmm. And, and we would take more of a vindictive approach. Joseph does neither and both. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he and he really puts them through the ringer. He is two things to them. He is hidden. He retains his, his secret identity. And he is harsh. And I, and I think a lot of people would see God that way and, and, and be confused by a God who would choose to be hidden and harsh. But... What's brought out in that story is is that the brothers um, that they have something that is that is wrong with them that Joseph needs to address. That as all people do, uh, they have learned to justify themselves in spite of the of the heinous actions that they've committed, and to believe something about themselves that's completely false, and yet maybe necessary for their own psyche. And so he, sa- he says, you've come to see where our land is, is vulnerable and you're spies. And, and they make this, this ironic response. They say, no, 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 your servants are honest men. 22 years they've allowed their father to think his beloved son is dead. They have perpetuated this life-shattering lie for 22 years. And they have the audacity to declare themselves honest men. It's not so strange. The more you get to know people, the more you realize everybody does that. And and that's the thing that has to be dealt with. How can the relationship be restored if these guys can't even begin to admit what they've done? 
it's not so much about being petty as it is that there is a massive roadblock between this relationship that has to come forth, that has to be dealt with. And so Joseph goes about putting them through the ringer, right? He goes through all kinds of stuff. Now, in their case, that there, there's more of a, it's more of a redemptive story in that he finally engineers things so that he can frame Benjamin for a crime and let the brothers off scot-free. Uh-huh. And, and Benjamin, as you know, is, is the father's only beloved son who is now bearing the sin of the perpetrators who he himself is innocent. That sound like anybody else, you know? Right. So, and yet why go through all this machination, right? Can you imagine what would have happened if Joseph said, hey guys, it's me, and I hold your life in my hands? Would the brothers have been like, oh yeah, well screw you. No. Right? <laughs> we're sorry, we're sorry, we didn't mean to do it. Right. Would that have been genuine? No, it would have been just based out of fear of, you know, being destroyed. Right, and there's this moment when Judah says, God has uncovered our sins today, right? Mm-hmm. In that, in when Joseph's like, no, Benjamin will stay here and be my slave. You guys go home and live your lives. And they're like, don't, don't send us. Don't, don't make us leave here. I Don't make me look at that pain in my father's eyes again. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a moment of real repentance. Mm-hmm. And it only comes through for, through great care. But if it doesn't come, there's nothing else to be done. You, you can't engineer it. I mean, you can't force it. It has to be. God is, has beautifully and in his genius engineered this, this sincere repentance for some. Right? But those who, for those for whom the story of, of what God has done and God's operation in their life, if that's not enough, human life, what's enough. there to do? Human life as God has designed it is the opportunity. Right, right. And and if that's not enough, there's not some later, like, you know, Joseph's like, well, they didn't get it. I guess I'll tell them who I am, and maybe they'll repent now. No, man, that's not going to happen. It just won't. Um, so this is like, that, that, that was, that, that's like sort of a profound personal theological explanation for something that I, for why there's not another opportunity after death. Um, it also seems in many, at least in several places, it's explicitly stated that after this comes judgment. There's right. a, there's this one human life, and after that comes judgment. Right. And really that's kind of the underlying uh, backdrop of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um so, so there's not there's 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 flimsy biblical support, if flimsy if any biblical support for an opportunity after death, right? And also theologically, morally, as you just described, it doesn't make sense that after right. death there would be an authentic opportunity for an authentic repentance, right? Yeah, there's not, and and some would say, well, that's what hell is. It's people choosing not to repent and choosing people not choosing not to be with God. Um, and and so they're choosing to live in a in a realm of, of suffering and and that would you know C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce others that's how they got around kind of this you know the, this theodicy of how could God create um, beings that He would know that He knows are going to suffer um, and, and yet at the same time if God keeps that 
place going because he's the sustainer of all things, then he is perpetuating suffering. Well, that gets into our second point. It well, it gets into like our third point, but but all that to say second is second question: that, yeah. What kind of hell? Right, right, right. It does. Yeah. Well, today but, we've just focused on why hell. Right, and why hell particularly is because fire is is um, a retributive destiny um, in that those Adolf Hitler, right, and and all of the things that he's done. Let's just say that he's the only one in hell. Well, that still says that there's going to be a hell, <laughs> you know. But he's he's surely not the only one, um, and and so. There's something that you say, well, what does somebody like that deserve? What are his desserts, his just desserts? That concept, I don't know, maybe we can believe we're so evolved that that concept doesn't exist anymore. But I think that that is really naive, really naive to think. It was like when Gandhi wrote this really friendly letter to Hitler asking him to please stop being so bad. You know, hey, I'm a huge fan of Gandhi, but that, that letter is pretty stinking naive. And obviously, history has shown that. Mm-hmm. I would. It's this tendency we have to pro, to uh, project our own good intentions on someone else. This is not founded uh, in in therapy. People understand you don't project on somebody. That's that's not a real real way of seeing them and their intentions by just saying, "Well, this is what I would do in your situation." That's obviously what you would do. That's that's folly mm-hmm. in in even even non biblical circles. We understand that that's folly. Um, that there are some people who are just bad, and they've maybe they've become bad through things that have happened to them and stuff. But once they've kind of reached that place, they don't have a place in God's creation. And if God creates a sub basement for them to live in, then He's perpetuating suffering. So hell is both re- retributive in that those who have done um, evil and um, need to pay for the evil they've done. But then there's also, it's also cleansing, it's purgative, not for the individual, but for creation, because God is, he's not just about the individual. I think the idea that there's no hell, it really is the product of a highly individualistic society where we think God is, is saving individuals. He certainly is, but he, his goal, as we talked about with the idea of one flesh, is this society, this, this functioning community. Mm-hmm. That's what he's cleansing in in these fires, um, and, and in the fires of hell. Now the fires of, of trials and persecution, we know he's cleansing us. But again, that's voluntary mm-hmm. as opposed to involuntary. Where it's involuntary, then the the individuals themselves must just be removed. Mm. So that's that's what my position on why why hell. Well, that's good. And we had the idea that we might not get through all this today. So we got through the first question, why hell? Mm-hmm. And next week we'll take up the question, what what kind of hell right. uh, uh, is uh, arising from Scripture and that makes sense to us? So thanks, everybody, for listening. Please, uh, by all means, email us your questions to uh, discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. 